and welcome to the Forum on Religion and Ecology podcast. Uh, this is going to be our last episode for this season, our third season. And so we're going to take a break for a few weeks and uh, retool some things and try to uh, keep things fresh and come back with our fourth season uh, in just uh, just a few weeks. So for now, I want to say a little by way of review of uh, what we've done over the last uh, three years since the podcast started. And uh, in the spirit of reviews, I thought I would also introduce a new format onto the podcast, book reviews. Uh, so I want to say a little bit about uh, Karen Armstrong's book, Sacred Nature, Restoring Our Ancient Bond with the Natural World, uh, which came out a little less than a year ago. So still pretty new, I would say. Uh, so I'll get into that in a minute. But first, I just wanted to say a little bit about the podcast because it's been three years. We started in the fall of 2020, right? So when uh, when the pandemic was really going and everybody was on Zoom for everything academic, uh, that's when we decided to start doing some Zoom interviews and get this podcast going. Since then, uh, we've done over 100 episodes. Uh, the first year, uh, 53. The second uh, year was 44. And a lot of those were um, sometimes two-parters where I would divide an episode into two parts. Uh, and some were clips, uh, you know, short clips of episodes. So some of them were full episodes, some not. And then for the third season, we decided to only do full episodes. And uh, so we've done uh, 25. So totally, uh, all together, this is the 123rd episode, which I thought was very appropriate for the end of the third season. One, two, three, 123rd episode. And so, I don't know, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. And I appreciate all of you listeners and watchers uh, who have been tuning in. And it's just been you know, a great excuse to have fun conversations with really interesting people doing work uh, in academia or more in activism, policy, right? So many different ways that people are engaging with religion and ecology uh, or the field of uh, the environmental humanities more broadly. So lots of fun. And uh, as always, I'm open to feedback from people. And uh, if you ever have somebody that you'd like me to reach out to, or if you yourself would maybe like to be on the podcast, feel free to reach out. One of the things I have heard from people who have reached out is uh, some people really appreciate that this podcast is a way for people to keep up with the field of religion and ecology. So there's so much work being done, right? Books coming out, conferences happening, different nonprofits and NGOs. So uh, I appreciate that people are, are keeping up with the field uh, through this. And that's one of the things that inspired me to introduce a book review. So I figured every now and again, we'll do something like uh, just a short book review to tell you about a book related to religion and ecology, and uh, not necessarily as a recommendation, but just to keep up with it. Uh, so in this case, I want to talk about Karen Armstrong's book, Sacred Nature, Restoring Our Ancient Bond with the Natural World. And uh, overall, a really good book. I really enjoyed it. A friend of mine who's really not involved in academia at all um, recommended it to me. I didn't know it came out. And uh, so it's really accessible to just general readers, anybody who's interested in spiritual things or in uh, nature or the intersection of nature and spirituality. I think people would get a lot out of it. Uh, so before I get into it, I'll say a little bit about Karen Armstrong. I think maybe some people don't know who she is. She's a very prominent author and scholar uh, in religious studies. I guess you could say specifically in comparative religion. And uh, born in 1944, uh, British. Uh, she was. Uh, she's a former Roman Catholic religious sister. She uh, joined a convent 
um, in her late teens. And then uh, in 1969, left the convent. And she writes about this. She has a memoir that she's written and she gets into all these details. And uh, so then after that, she focused much more broadly on, uh, on religion, not narrowly confined to Catholicism. She started to really embrace all the world's religions. She used to call herself a freelance monotheist, which I think is a nice term. She's like, I you know, believe in one God, but everybody's visions of that one God, I'm open to hearing from them, you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, etc. More recently, I think she said, I'm not even sure if I'm a monotheist anymore. I might be a Confucian. So interesting turn, right? So that's just a little about her uh, personal life and her orientation toward comparative religion. So, you know, a lot of her stuff, she's got many books, some award-winning books, and a lot of it is trying to find those common core principles that underlie all religious traditions. And uh, one of the big ones for her is compassion uh, or the golden rule. Uh, she's like, the, all the religions kind of are pointing toward this. And uh, so I appreciate that. That's one of the things that I really like in religious studies is when people try to find the commonalities, because uh, even though religions are so different from one another, there's still a lot in common, including the basic idea that maybe people shouldn't be jerks, right? Be compassionate, care about others. A very simple point, but always bears repeating. So uh, the new book, Sacred Nature, it's about the sacredness of nature. And the subtitle really says it all, restoring our ancient bond with the natural world. So we're trying to restore a connection to nature that has been lost. And she really situates the loss of a connection to nature with the advent of modernity. And which is very similar to things like Carolyn Merchant's uh, The Death of Nature, where something happened with the uh, scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, where nature was really just treated as a, an object, a machine, and we lost a sense of reverence for it. And that kind of desecration of nature has supported the destruction of nature. And so the environmental crisis, right, it's not just a crisis of technology or policy failures or economics. It's also a crisis of our spirituality. So a, a basic point many people make, right, and have uh, for decades. And, uh, you know, you think of people like Wallace Stegner or John Muir. They were saying this in the early 20th century. Uh, and certainly people like uh, Thomas Berry, all the work that the Forum on Religion and Ecology does, um, the deep ecology movement with Arnie Ness. So, so many people make this point. So she's kind of just putting her spin on that same point that uh, we lost a connection to nature where we revered it and sensed its holiness. If we can get that back, that can help motivate us to be better custodians of the planet. Uh, so here's a, a quote from the book. She makes uh, this point very clearly that religious practices and disciplines uh, can help us to develop an aesthetic appreciation of nature and to devise an ethical program that will guide our behavior and our thoughts. So very nice points. Um, like I said, it's a very accessible book. Uh, so if you know you need something to introduce these ideas to undergraduates, very accessible. Generally interested readers can get it, you know. Um, it's about a uh, little over 200 pages, uh, 10 chapters plus an intro and an epilogue. So 12 chapters total. And, uh, and also very practical, I should add. Um, at the end of each chapter, she concludes with a brief section of suggestions on how to incorporate these teachings into your life, right? And whether or not you embrace the tradition or not, right? So uh, Buddhist teachings about revering nature, Christian teachings, and she's like, what are some ways 
you can actually bring these into your life. So that's nice. Um, so overall, a nice structure to everything. And uh, the oh, I won't go into too much detail, but she covers in all the chapters, I'll say a little. It's, it's things like the basic lessons that we can learn from religion. So it's not divided in terms of religions. It's divided in terms of the teachings. And then each chapter shows how that teaching shows up in different religions. Um, so seeing nature as sacred or holy, right? Christians have a way to do that. Muslims have a way to do that. Taoists, uh, Confucians, etc. cetera. Um, uh, she has a chapter on gratitude. Again, something shows up in all religions. And uh, the Golden Rule has a chapter. Uh, ahimsa, you know, the South Asian concept of nonviolence or non-harm and uh, shows up in you know, Jainism, Hinduism, Buddhism, but also nonviolence shows up in other religions. That's, you know, religions generally tell us to be peaceable people. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these things, gratitude, nonviolence, we might think of those as human to human relations, but she really draws out how it also pertains to nature. Um, and the final chapter is on concentric circles. Right, this idea that humans are embedded in society, society is embedded in Earth, Earth is embedded in the cosmos. Right, we have these kind of concentric circles of identity, and ultimately, we're all one or interconnected. So, there's definitely a deep sense of oneness uh, that she draws on throughout the book, always looking at the oneness of things. She uses the uh, term from the Confucian scholar Du Wei Ming uh, that we are anthropocosmic, right? That the human, anthropos, and the universe, cosmos, are ultimately one unity, one coherent totality. And uh, so we're distinct clearly from one another, but that distinctness is kind of superficial. Ultimately, everything is one. And when you tap into that oneness, then you can experience gratitude and reverence, and that helps guide ethical behaviors of nonviolence. So um, very, very good points throughout. And uh, so I recommend it, especially uh, as an introductory text. Um, if you're a scholar in this field, uh, you might get a lot out of it too, because a lot of scholars in religion ecology might focus on one religion, but don't know a lot about the others. So you might know some stuff about uh, Hinduism, but maybe you're light on Islam. Maybe you know some stuff about Islam, but you don't know anything about Confucianism or Taoism, right? Uh, so uh, fun read and uh, lots of good stuff. Uh, so there are some, some limitations. It wouldn't be a book review without some, uh, pointing out some limitations to it, which I think are instructive. I'm not just trying to, um, you know, take away from it. Uh, I'm trying to also open up questions. So for instance, there's a, uh, a chapter on sacrifice. And that's one of those where I'm like, ah, in terms of framing, I don't know if we want to tell people that they have to sacrifice something in order to solve the environmental crisis. I've heard other ways to frame it where people say, actually, right now we're sacrificing our well-being. And so the idea that you might have to use less energy and consume less, that that's a sacrifice, like no overconsumption is you sacrificing your well-being and your health, right? You're, uh, and you're, you're leading basically a, a life of excess and you know, this kind of vicious, excessive consumption. Like that's the sacrifice. Uh, so that's when we're like, ah, I'm not sure if that's the right frame um that people need to give up things like well of course yeah people who have yachts maybe need to give up their yachts that's you know they emit so much co2 and, and yet framing it as a giving up might not be that ethically expedient you might not you know win people over by telling them how much they're going to have to give up 
So on the other hand, I do appreciate that she changes the way sacrifice is framed. She does talk about giving up things, um, but she also talks about sacrifice as commitment and hard work, um, right? And it's sustained effort, right? That a sacrificial attitude toward things is this kind of the sustained effort of a ritualistic connection to nature. So that's, that's the upside of that. Um, so overall, right, the, through everything she does, it's, it's really clear that a cohesive theology of oneness, harmony, and reverence for the natural world can help all religious traditions realign uh, with nature. So, you know, another issue I had is um, she doesn't really address how religion's not enough. Like uh, one of the things that you hear from Mary Evelyn Tucker and John Grimm regularly is that religions are necessary in our transition toward a more just and sustainable relationship to nature, but they're not sufficient. And, uh, and Armstrong doesn't quite indicate how religion needs to cooperate with maybe scientific perspectives or policy or whatever in order to, uh, to fully address our environmental issues. So reverence isn't enough. I mean, one example of this, uh, and she doesn't bring up the Ganges River and the horrible pollution of the Ganges, but that would be a very clear example of something where reverence isn't enough. People revere the Ganges, but somehow that reverence is so intense that it allows some people to ignore the pollution in the Ganges. They think the pollution doesn't matter because the sacredness of the Ganges is so powerful. It's so sacred, nothing could possibly harm it. It's so pure that pollution could never uh, uh, defile it. And so it, you might know some work uh, from Kelly Alley on the purity and pollution of the Ganges River. Uh, so there's lots of people who are talking about these things, that seeing the sacredness of nature doesn't necessarily entail that you're going to have an ethical relationship or sustainable relationship to nature. So that's, that's a little bit of a tough one. Um, another issue uh, is the religion-science dichotomy. She kind of drives a wedge between those two, the opening chapter on mythos and logos. You know, uh, she treats myth and logic like they're very different, like reason and emotion are these two totally separate things. And uh, as if science doesn't have a narrative structure to it, a mythic structure, um, and plenty of people have pointed this out. Uh, philosophers like Paul Ricoeur are a good example, where it turns out all human understanding operates with a narrative structure. That's just how we interpret our world. So even science does involve something like narrative or myth and, and that it can move us emotionally. Um, you know, she says uh, pretty explicitly that it doesn't. So here's a quote from the book. Uh, a great deal of environmental discussion is scientific. This provides us with essential information and we have become familiar with the terminology, but it does not move us emotionally. And I'm, you know, just from personal experience, like I'm moved emotionally by it. Um, or think of uh, somebody like uh, Brian Swim, right? When you hear Brian Swim talking about cosmogenesis, right? The fact that the cosmos is an evolutionary process, that it's evolving, right? And that we're part of this process. That's amazing. You don't have to add any religious element to it. The story itself is emotionally inspiring. You might feel awe and wonder. Um, so I think driving a wedge between science and religion is complicated, especially because religion is scientific in its own way, right? Like 
some of uh, like Buddhist principles could be understood as uh, psychology, right? And uh, I also think of indigenous traditions as native science, right? As Gregory Cajete says, native science. Uh, or Jessica Hernandez and her book, Fresh Banana Leaves, uh, Robin Kimmerer uh, with Braiding Sweetgrass. There, it turns out religion and science aren't so opposed. And uh, driving that wedge between them might cause more complications when religions and sciences need to cooperate in order to address environmental issues together. Uh, for instance, along the Ganges River. You know, you want some scientists to say, hey, this river is so polluted, we need to address the way we're treating it. Uh, and then re our reverence can help motivate that. So we want religions involved, but we want the sciences involved too. We want to see that kind of cooperation and collaboration. So what else? You know, another thing that I always think about when people talk about revering nature is like, which part of nature? Nature's big, even just talking about the planet. You, you know, you can't necessarily love everything all the time. I always think if my cat has fleas, like I get the fleas off of her. Those fleas might die in the process. So I have to choose, right? Um, so there are really incompatible choices out there. Uh, I mean, just think of uh, the question of vegetarianism. You know, so if we want harmony and oneness with nature, is it okay to eat nature? And she addresses it a little, but it's one of those things where you say, well, indigenous people will hunt, but they hunt with reverence, so they're not over hunting. Uh, but still, it's, it's a question. You know, uh, a big issue for climate change, people often talk about uh, the, the beef industry and cattle ranching. And so is it okay to raise cattle? Is that permissible? What if you revere the cattle? Does that make it okay? Or because of the uh, emissions associated with uh, cattle ranching, it just nobody should do it, whether or not you revere the cattle or not. So, um, and of course, people say it's not the cow, it's the how, right? Industrial uh, processes of cattle ranching are terrible compared to like uh, regenerative ranching methods where you use rotational grazing, the cows are eating grass, not alfalfa. And, you know, so it's, there's different methods. And so who decides, you know, we want harmony and oneness and all that, but who, harmony for who, and who gets to decide that harmony? So there's real, um, you know, real conflicts there. It's nice to celebrate all the world's religions, but they do disagree on some things. And, uh, and people who are very educated about scientific issues disagree on some things. Uh, regenerative agriculture, cattle ranching, things like that. There's lots of different ways to do it. It would have been nice to see a little bit more of the tension addressed in the book. This tension is not a bad thing. It's just those are kind of going to be the, the growing edges where new possibilities emerge. So we don't want to um, don't want to hide the tension. We want to bring it up so that we can talk about it and figure out how to navigate that. Um, one other thing, not much attention to indigenous traditions in here. I mentioned them in regard to hunting, uh, but she just has a handful of, uh, of discussions of it just on a few pages. Uh, out of like a 225-page book, there's really just a few pages that get into it. And even then, She's not using indigenous scholars to talk about it. She's kind of making just some general points. And then she mentions something about, you know, Lucian Levi Brule, like a late 19th century, early 20th century anthropologist. So pretty outdated information. She brings up David Abram and his ideas about indigenous thought uh, and practice. But again, you know, you could have used an indigenous scholar and gotten more into it because uh, obviously indigenous traditions have a tremendous amount to offer uh, discussions of religion and nature. 
Um, so that's, that's a big gap. And, uh, and, you know, she really favors all the axial age traditions, right? So that's a bit of a problem too. Speaking of David Abram, who's wonderful, just cause he's not an indigenous author. Doesn't mean don't use him. He's, I've, I've worked with him personally. Great guy, great writer, great thinker. Um, and, uh, but if you're going to talk about indigenous traditions, there's more resources out there. And so that's just a separate issue. There's really not a thorough engagement in this book with all the resources that are already available in the study of religion and the environment, nature, religion, ecology, however you want to frame it. There's a lot of stuff out there and, uh, and there's not even much acknowledgement that that stuff is there. So even referring to Dave Abram, there's one time where it's misspelled. His name is misspelled as Abrams. I'm like, how did that get through? And because, I mean, this is Karen Armstrong. We get, get some good copy editors on this. And somehow that mistake got through. And it's just a typo. So I'm not trying to be a jerk about a typo. But it is kind of, you know, indicative of this general problem of not really referring to the massive amount of work that's been done in, let's say, the last 25, 30 years, um, certainly since the mid-90s. I think of the uh, series of conferences at Harvard, the Center for the Study of World's Religions, and uh, where uh, folks, you know, Mary Evelyn Tucker, John Grimm, organizing all these conferences, and uh, where one is just Hinduism and ecology, one is just Taoism and ecology. And so out of that, all these books came out. And uh, Armstrong refers to those books, um, all of them except for the indigenous traditions book, interestingly. So she mentions Confucianism and ecology, Taoism and ecology, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, but no indigenous. And even then, she only mentions each one like once and doesn't get into those sources very deeply. Um, the bibliography is is very short. Um, there's no mention of the forum on religion and ecology. And of course, you know, since I'm hosting a podcast for the forum, I felt personally attacked. Uh, I'm joking, of course, but uh, but it is it's a big omission because we don't just need good books about revering nature. We need to build networks of collaboration and people are out there doing that. Um, you know, people working for like the United Nations Environment Program, integrating faith uh, into what they're doing. And uh, people like Forum on Religion and Ecology or the um, Society for the Study of Religion, Nature, Culture. And uh, the lots of people doing a lot of great work. So many NGOs, so many nonprofits that are uh, doing faith-based environmentalism. And so none of that is acknowledged and so it's, it's such a missed opportunity uh, to build and to connect. And uh, it's a beautiful book, but it, it, it was a missed opportunity for a little bit more leverage, uh, for more cooperation across all the people who are doing uh, such great work in this area. So, you know, some, some gaps in her thinking uh, in terms of indigenous traditions. And uh, there's some um, things that are maybe overemphasized like the difference between science and religion. Uh, and then there's just a, a missed opportunity uh, to build more collaborative networks. But again, it's a beautiful book. It's an enjoyable read, uh, very easy uh, to read, very accessible. And, uh, and it does have the kind of practical suggestions at the end of every chapter. So even if you're somebody who is already very interested in the world of religion, ecology, and a scholar of it, um, some of the practical suggestions might still be helpful. And because uh, we all need guidance because things are pretty strange here on earth right now. Uh, so that's the book. 
Um, I, I never really recommend or don't recommend books. I'm just like, here's what the book is about. You decide. Cause there's so much out there to read that there's kind of the opportunity cost. Like every time you read one book, you're not reading another book. And how do you decide which ones to read and which ones to not read? Cause you can't read everything. Uh, I've tried and it was exhausting. Uh, so, uh, check it out. And, uh, and if you, if you like the, the feel of it, uh, read it, enjoy it, integrate it into your life, uh, or, read other things, but definitely read things that can nourish you, inspire you and help motivate you to do, you know, what Thomas Berry called the great work of our time, carrying out this transition from a period of uh, destruction where humans have a destructive presence to the planet and transitioning toward a period of mutually enhancing relationships between humans and all of the living earth community. So, that's it for me. I hope you enjoyed the short review. Um, if, uh, if anybody else, you know, if you have any books you'd like me to review, feel free, feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm around. Uh, so I'll, uh, end it here, take a break for a few weeks, and then we'll come back with season four, uh, sometime at the end of August. All right. So thanks again to all the watchers and listeners. Uh, take care and be well.